It was just after midnight on August 30, 1997. 36-year-old Diana, Princess of Wales, and 42-year-old Egyptian film producer Dodi Fayed crept down the back staircase of the Ritz Hotel in Paris. A throng of paparazzi had gathered at the front of the hotel, their cameras poised to snap the British princess and her boyfriend. But their patience was wasted. The couple slipped out the hotel's back entrance and slid into the back seat of a black Mercedes-Benz sedan. Their bodyguard, Trevor Reese Jones, settled into the passenger seat. One of the hotel's security members, Henri Paul, took the wheel. Paul floored the gas pedal and they sped off into the night. The car darted through the city streets, reaching a speed of 65 miles per hour, over twice the legal limit. Then it turned along the river's sin embankment and raced toward the Pondalalma underpass. By now, paparazzi had taken notice of the sleek black Mercedes darting along the river. They were in hot pursuit as it disappeared into the dark underpass. Some say the driver was blinded by a camera flash. Others maintain that the Mercedes was clipped by a paparazzo in a white Fiat. And still others blame it on the driver himself, an autopsy report would reveal that he had been drunk and high. Whatever the reason, the car spun out of control. It struck a wall in the tunnel, then veered into a concrete pillar. Henri Paul and Dodi Fayed were killed. The bodyguard was gravely injured. And approximately three and a half hours later, Princess Diana, the most photographed woman of her time, was declared dead. It was a traumatic end to a wild era for the British royal family. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our fifth episode on the dark side of the 90s. As every decade brings new challenges, a rosy tint has started to color these bygone years. But all this nostalgia obscures more unpleasant pages of 90s history. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Today, we're traveling across the pond to London's Buckingham Palace and the royal family. Oasis and the Spice Girls may have pumped 90s British music into our eardrums, but it was the English tabloids that really turned Americans into Anglophiles during this decade. From Fergie's sex scandal to Diana's untimely demise, the British monarchy saw a maelstrom of illicit affairs, information leaks, and even a castle fire. And as Queen Elizabeth tried to keep her otherwise tight-lipped court from completely spilling the tea, America happily reached for the biscuits. We'll dig into the monarchy's misfortunes right after this. Cool fact, 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. It's impossible to survey the 90s without recalling a plethora of scandals surrounding America's favorite overlord-turned-ally, Britain. Throughout the decade, grocery checkout lines were jammed with tabloids offering royal gossip. Queen orders divorce, or 4 a.m., castle still burns. While these made for exciting gossip in both the U.K. and the U.S., the 90s royal family drama would end with one of the most lamented deaths in history. And for the family of Queen Elizabeth II, the entire decade from start to finish was nothing short of a personal disaster. Perhaps their biggest regret was that all this attention could have largely been avoided if it were not for an event one decade earlier, on July 29, 1981. This, of course, was the fairy tale wedding of Queen Elizabeth II's son and heir to the throne, 32-year-old Charles, Prince of Wales, to a shy 20-year-old kindergarten assistant, Diana Spencer. It was the wedding of the century. An estimated 750 million people across the globe tuned in as Diana glided up the aisle of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. For years to come, brides would copy her iconic wedding gown with its 25-foot-long train and voluminous puffed sleeves. Sleeves that were full of secrets with room for more. You see, Diana wasn't the only woman in Charles's life, and she never even took the place of leading lady. That special nook was reserved for one person only. Camilla Parker Bowles. Camilla was an ex-girlfriend of Prince Charles from his early 20s, and by the time of the royal wedding, she was already eight years into her own first marriage. But according to Diana's biographer, Andrew Morton, the princess had early suspicions about Charles' continued friendship with his ex. Diana would later claim to have discovered a bracelet engraved from him to Camilla just days before the wedding. Still, she hoped for the best, and as Charles waited for her by the altar, few paused to wonder whether the prince still harbored feelings for an old flame. All eyes were on his radiant bride. Make no mistake, Diana was an aristocrat carefully approved by the queen, not a rags-to-riches scenario. But to the everyday person, she was one of them, the first Englishwoman in over 300 years to marry an heir to the British throne, and therefore the real-life version of a fairy tale. 
The royal wedding catapulted the British monarchy into the spotlight. People were obsessed with Diana and, by extension, her in-laws. She was, as Prime Minister Tony Blair called her, the People's Princess. The press fueled this narrative, giving extensive coverage of everything from Diana's philanthropic work to her family vacations. They painted an idyllic picture of her and Charles as the perfect couple, alongside their adorable sons, Princes William and Harry. But this unprecedented attention only made the scandals ahead that much harder to navigate. By 1990, Charles and Diana's relationship was on the rocks. The prince was reportedly already four years deep in an affair with Camilla, and his mother was powerless to stop him. Instead, Queen Elizabeth did her best to keep the relationship under wraps. She even allowed Charles to use her Balmoral estate in Scotland for his trysts, which were no secret to Diana. With her husband hopelessly preoccupied, the princess, by all accounts, entertained her own string of suitors, including the British actor and gin heir, James Gilby. Details from this particular relationship would soon become public. Meanwhile, Charles and Diana continued presenting what the 1991 Sunday Mirror tabloids described as a united front to the world. Everyone wanted to believe the fairy tale was playing out just as they'd imagined, that the elegant prince was still in love with his fashionable bride. But it was only a matter of time before this charade fell apart. 1992 was the year Queen Elizabeth II would describe as a horrible year. As January rolled around, murmurs swirled that Charles and Diana were not doing as well as they let on. This was all but confirmed in a now-iconic photograph of Diana taken in front of the Taj Mahal in India. It was one of Charles's favorite places in the world, and the public knew he had made a promise to Diana, back when they were engaged, to take her there. But in February of 1992, Diana posed in front of the monument alone. Diana then told reporters it had been a healing experience. When pressed for an explanation, she answered, work it out for yourself. After this, the royal couple received even closer scrutiny than before. But the real tip of the 1992 iceberg emerged one month later. On March 19th, Buckingham Palace announced the separation of one of the Queen's other sons, Duke of York, Prince Andrew, from his wife, Sarah Ferguson, or Fergie. It was high time. Their relationship had been non-existent for years, and at the time of the announcement, the press was already speculating about Fergie's friendship with a Texas oil magnate, Steve Wyatt. And the Queen's own reaction to the matter was open to brutal interpretation. The same day as the announcement, Elizabeth II removed Fergie from all royal duties. She also made it clear that Fergie would not receive any help from her in-laws with regards to her mounting personal debts. Just like that, Fergie had been cut loose, no longer one of them. As one reporter put it, following a press briefing with Buckingham Palace, the knives were out for Fergie. This was just one of many depictions to come that would paint Queen Elizabeth in an unflattering light. Tabloids announced that she was cold and unfeeling. They speculated that she was heartless towards anyone that was not related to her by blood, 
and they suggested that she and her relatives were snobs, a closed-off family who kept outsiders at an arm's length, spurning anyone who didn't make the cut. Then, one month after the separation, the royals endured another blow to their image. On April 23rd, the Queen's only daughter, 41-year-old Princess Anne, finalized her divorce from 43-year-old Captain Mark Anthony Peter Phillips. With one separation and a divorce confirmed, Britain's model family was coming apart at the seams, and the public was hunkering down for more juicy details. Princess Diana was about to dish them out. Up next, the biography that shocked the world. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Now, back to the story. As the spring of 1992 drew to a close, Queen Elizabeth had already weathered the separation of her second son, Prince Andrew, from his spouse, Sarah Ferguson, or Fergie. Her daughter, Princess Anne, had also finalized a divorce. And amidst all this, rumors swirled that Prince Charles and Princess Diana were unhappy in their marriage. So far, the royal couple had maintained an impressive facade, considering that Charles was having an affair with Camilla Parker Bowles. The Queen hoped the situation could limp along as it was. Not so great, but not getting any worse. Then, on June 7, 1992, a ticking time bomb exploded. English journalist Andrew David Morton stunned the royal family by releasing a book titled Diana, her true story. It hit number one on the New York Times bestsellers list within the first month of publication and sold five million copies over the next few years. Buyers around the world raced home to devour the tale of a beloved public figure, a tragic one, as they were about to discover. Diana, her true story, provided an avalanche of private information on the 30-year-old princess and her relationship to the royal family. It revealed, for the very first time, that Charles was having an affair with his former ex-girlfriend, Camilla. And it blamed the affair for ruining Diana and Charles' marriage. The book also alleged that the royal family had gaslit Diana and her concerns over Charles' adultery. 
It's said they patronized her, ignoring her overwhelming loneliness and misery. The author, Morton, also revealed that Diana struggled with bulimia and postnatal depression. He said she didn't feel suited to the intense speculation surrounding her station. From cover to cover, the book was an astonishing expose, articulate to the point that it was almost as if the princess herself had helped write it. She, in fact, had. For years, Diana would deny her involvement, even lying about it to the Queen's face. But after her death in 1997, Morton would reveal that the princess had been deeply involved in her own biography. She had fed him a stream of letters and cassette tapes, revealing her intimate life's history and her current unhappiness. But at the time of the book's release in 92, Morton was called a liar. He later reminisced on this volatile epoch in the foreword of the 25th anniversary edition of the book, writing, It is hard now, when the narrative of Diana's unhappy life is conventional wisdom, to convey the shock, disgust, and astonishment that greeted the book's first installment. One member of Parliament suggested I be imprisoned in the Tower of London. Still, the damage was done. The royal family had been painted as hostile, elitist insiders who treated Diana, the most beloved of them all, as though she were a prisoner and puppet. This depiction would gain more credibility as time went on. For a moment in August of 1992, public speculation took a sordid detour towards an alienated member of the royal family, Fergie. On August 20th, a series of scandalous photos hit newsstands across Britain, America, and the rest of the world. They distinctly showed 42-year-old Sarah Ferguson, the estranged wife of Prince Andrew, sunbathing topless. As if this wasn't unladylike enough, Fergie was joined by a male companion, her financial advisor, John Bryan. In the photos, Bryan was, to put it bluntly, sucking on her toes. The Daily Mirror tabloid was the first to drop the story in the UK. The Queen and her family were at Balmoral Estate in Scotland when the news broke. This was a monarch who had once balked at paparazzi photos of a pregnant Princess Diana in a bikini back in 1982. At the time, Elizabeth II had called it the blackest day in the history of British journalism. If she had thought those photos were embarrassing, one can only imagine the disgrace of Fergie's snapshots. Anne-Marie O'Neill, former senior editor at People magazine, would later say, It's not like it was pornographic. It was just so undignified. It really was the first time that the royal family was opened up to such ridicule. Ridicule that would continue with another embarrassing leak just four days later. On August 24, 1992, Squidgygate happened. This was the famous release of a phone call taped nearly two years prior, on New Year's Eve 1989, between 31-year-old Princess Diana and the British actor and gin heir, James Gilby. Throughout the tape, Gilby called Diana by his affectionate nickname for her, Squidgy. Their chatter was interspersed with complaints by Diana about her in-laws and Charles. In speaking about a luncheon earlier that day, she lamented, I just felt so sad and empty and thought, after all I've done for this f***ing family, 
It's just so desperate. He makes my life real torture, I've decided. Stuart Higgins, the royal correspondent for The Sun tabloid, claims to have played the tape for Gilby in 1990, meaning Diana probably caught wind of it. In light of this, some believe that Diana's 91 biography was in part a way for the princess to get ahead of any public backlash towards the affair. True or not, it worked. The British and international public were further drawn into what became known as the War of the Waleses, a battle between Charles, Prince of Wales, and Diana, Princess of Wales, over the hearts of the public. And so far, Diana was winning. Although the public had raised the princess to the pedestal she so detested, they also sympathized with her. What could be more human than to have a neglectful spouse or to dislike your snobby in-laws? Not only was Diana more accessible than most of her royal kin, she had endeared herself to the public with her demure yet warm nature. She wasn't afraid to hug strangers in a crowd. She had been an avid champion in the fight against AIDS, helping combat its social stigmas. And she was the patron of the leprosy mission in England, regularly visiting its sick patients. The way outsiders saw it, Diana was doing the best she could inside the palace, while Charles was off dallying with Camilla. As such, Squidgygate was cast in a sympathetic light. Onlookers commiserated with Diana, concluding that she had been driven into the arms of another out of rejection and loneliness. Then, in the fall of 1992, the personal struggles inside the House of Windsor were joined by a tangible disaster. On November 20th, 1992, Windsor Castle caught fire. From 11 in the morning until late at night, Flames engulfed 7,000 square meters of the royal family's historic home. Queen Elizabeth II could only pace back and forth outside as trained firefighters and civilian volunteers did their best to rescue books, rugs, and other fragments of Britain's history from the blaze. In the end, the fire was determined to have started in the Queen's private chapel. A spotlight had been placed too close to a curtain. The metaphor couldn't have been more obvious. The thin veil separating the monarchy from the eyes of the public had been all but burned down by the intense press spotlight that year. All eyes were on the Queen as the cost to rebuild the castle was announced. Repairs were at that time estimated at 60 million pounds, equivalent to over 135 million US dollars today. The public balked at this price tag. Why should taxpayers be forced to build a new house for a wealthy family who didn't even get along with each other? Four days later, on November 24, 1992, the Queen stepped up to the podium for her 40th anniversary celebration as ruler of Britain. Everyone waited for her to address the castle repairs head-on. Instead, she delivered a shockingly honest but eloquent speech. The Queen acknowledged that her year had been one of continuous turmoil, saying, In the words of one of my more sympathetic correspondents, it has turned out to be an honus horribilis. That's Latin for horrible year. She went on to address public criticism, acknowledging its critical role in any institution. But she also believed that later generations would remember 1992 with, quote, 
a slightly more moderate view than that of some contemporary commentators. In short, Elizabeth II was asking for understanding. She hoped to humanize not just Diana, but herself and all of her family before the watching world. However, the last word wasn't uttered until a couple of weeks later on December 9, 1992. That day, Britain's Prime Minister John Major released a statement that would ripple around the world. It is announced from Buckingham Palace that with regret, the Prince and Princess of Wales have decided to separate. Coming up, the media frenzy surrounding Charles and Diana grows deadly. Now back to the story. By New Year's Day, 1993, Queen Elizabeth II was happy to shake the past year's dust off her patent leather heels. The last 12 months had been punishing for the British royal family, whose personal grievances were exacerbated by intense global media coverage. Among the catastrophes weathered were one tell-all book, one castle fire, one divorce, and two separations. The last of these was between the 44-year-old heir to the throne, Prince Charles, and his wife, 31-year-old Princess Diana. Their separation had been announced by Prime Minister John Major in December of 1992, closing out one of the worst years in Queen Elizabeth II's 40-year reign. But the PM had offered Britain a small bit of reassurance with the announcement, stating... There is no reason why the Princess of Wales should not be crowned queen in due course. Doubtless, Queen Elizabeth hoped for a bit of breathing room in the new year. She had decided to personally fund the repair of Windsor Castle after a brutal fire in November, a decision that would save taxpayers millions. And the repairs were done more inexpensively, over 20 million pounds less than initial estimates. Later on, in April of 1993, she volunteered to start paying income tax, something she was not obligated to do. But despite these gestures, a fresh heap of embarrassment soiled the palace doorstep. In January of 1993, Camilla Gate replaced Princess Diana's Squidgy Gate as the most salacious royal phone call to date. The tape relayed a phone conversation between Prince Charles and his mistress, Camilla Parker Bowles, back in 1989. But the insight it lent to the public in 1993 was as fresh as ever. The pair seemed to be on extremely comfortable terms, alternating familiar chit-chat with expressions of desire. Charles said he wished he could live inside Camilla's trousers, and he made a quip about becoming her tampon, among other shockingly more explicit jokes. Camilla Gate, or Tampon Gate, illustrated a new and sordid low for the monarchy. Here was someone from Britain's most refined family, the future heir of Britain's throne, no less, making cringe-worthy innuendos. As sordid as it was, the public loved the idea that they could finally eavesdrop on the royals. Newspapers even set up phone lines where people could call in to hear the Camilla Gate tape for themselves. But as Deidre Sanders, a columnist for the Sun tabloid, would remark, if Charles had wanted to rob the monarchy of mystique, he couldn't have calculated a more effective method. 
More concerning, however, was the increase in public speculation about whether Charles would ever accede to the throne. Were he to divorce Diana and marry Camilla, the prince would be in the same boat as his mother's uncle, Edward VIII, who was forced to choose between becoming king or marrying a divorcee. Edward famously chose the latter. Charles wasn't the only one suffering the shame of Camilla Gate. Camilla herself would recall the mid-90s as a time when she could barely step outside her front door. In a 2017 interview with the Daily Mail tabloid, she recounted, It was horrid. I wouldn't want to put my worst enemy through it. The press had effectively painted her as the foil to Diana, a villain to the princess's victim. And Camilla was no match for the younger blonde who dazzled the world with her honesty, philanthropy, and fashion sense. Then, in December of 1994, Camilla filed for divorce from her husband, further stoking the fires of gossip. Would she or wouldn't she replace Diana as Charles' wife? Was Diana to be kept around the palace forever? For Queen Elizabeth, the answer didn't arrive until nearly a year later. On November 20th, 1995, BBC One's Panorama television program aired an exclusive pre-recorded interview with 34-year-old Princess Diana. She had apparently smuggled a small TV crew into Kensington Palace with the help of a few friends. Then she gave BBC journalist Martin Bashir an interview that would shock the world. For the first time ever, Diana spoke publicly about Charles' affair and how hard it had been for her, famously stating, There were three of us in the marriage, so it was a bit crowded. The princess also discussed how she had lacked the sympathy or support of other royal family members, even when Charles was cheating on her. And she talked about her experience with postnatal depression, saying, It gave everybody a wonderful new label, Diana's unstable and Diana's mentally unbalanced. Diana admitted that her ongoing isolation within the palace had led her to struggles with bulimia and self-harm. And she even divulged that she had once had an affair with her writing instructor, James Hewitt, from 1986 to 1991. Perhaps most damaging of all to the royal family was how Diana expressed doubts over whether Charles would be a suitable king. She called him the enemy and said that the monarchy needed modernization, but that she doubted she would still be around for it. It was nothing short of a betrayal. A few weeks passed before Queen Elizabeth wrote to Charles and Diana, urging them to file for divorce. Her advice went public on December 20th, one month after the Panorama interview, and it caused an instant sensation. It was the first time since Henry VIII that a British monarch had supported divorce. In Elizabeth II's case, she was championing it. Charles quickly agreed with his mother. But Diana's consent didn't arrive until two months later, on February 29, 1996, when she deliberately failed to notify the palace and instead had her own spokesperson announce the decision. A middle finger to royal customs. Still, the queen breathed a sigh of relief. It would all be over with soon. Or so she thought. On August 28, 1996, 
the divorce was finalized. Princess Diana would never be queen. She would, however, receive a 17 million pound settlement and a stipend of 400,000 pounds a year. She'd also retain a sizable portion of Kensington Palace and access to the royal private jets. And while she had been stripped of Her Royal Highness, Diana still retained her title, Princess of Wales. After the divorce, Diana continued making headlines as arguably the most famous woman of her time, and certainly the most photographed. She had whittled her role as patron at over 100 charities down to just six, including the Leprosy Mission and National AIDS Trust. Now, she threw herself into these ventures with a vengeance, shaking hands, giving interviews, and forging a stronger identity than ever as a philanthropic free agent. Diana caused a distinct stir in January of 1997 when she was photographed walking through a minefield in Angola, Africa. She was there to meet with survivors as part of the Halo Trust's anti-landmine campaign. At the time, Britain was involved in delicate negotiations leading up to the United Nations Mine Ban Treaty, and Diana's bold stance was seen as out of line. Meddling in politics, some said. Loose cannon, according to Britain's junior defense minister, Earl Howe. But to the public, Diana was a heroine beyond reproach. They couldn't wait to watch the rest of her life unfold, and they were especially eager to see where her love life would lead. With the divorce only months behind them, everyone wondered who would be the princess's next Prince Charming. By summer of 1997, the answer seemed to be 42-year-old Egyptian film producer Dodi Fayed. Diana's new boyfriend was rich, successful, and swarthy, a far cry from the pallid Charles. In August of 1997, the pair went on vacation to the French and Italian Riviera. The paparazzi followed them everywhere, desperate for a story on the two lovebirds. The ending would horrify everyone. On August 30th, 1997, Princess Diana and Dodi finished their vacation and flew back to Paris. They convened at the Ritz Hotel before taking off for Dodi's family's apartment across town. But they never made it. In the hours after midnight on August 31st, the pair was killed in a car crash inside Paris's Pont de l'Alma tunnel. News of Diana's death rippled around the globe. The gates of Kensington Palace flooded with thousands of mourners bringing gifts, flowers, and letters. Crowds were invited to write down their tributes at one of 15 available stations, which later expanded to a total of 43. The Salvation Army set up a stall to serve tea and comfort the heartbroken masses. We all know the five stages of grief. By September 14th, anger had set in. Britain was in an uproar against the royal family, who remained at their Balmoral estate in Scotland, more or less ignoring the outcry. Sure, Charles had flown to Paris the same night as the crash, but what about the rest of the family? The resounding criticism from the public and politicians alike poured in. The Daily Mail asked, has the House of Windsor a heart? While the Express insisted, show us you care. The royals swiftly released a statement sharing that they were focused on Diana's sons, 
15-year-old William and 12-year-old Harry. But the message had been received. They needed to save face, and fast. The next day, September 5th, the Queen was back in London delivering a five-minute address on Diana's death. She called her deceased daughter-in-law an exceptional and gifted human being. High praise from someone who had barely spoken about Diana when she was alive. The funeral was held the following day on September 6, 1997. An estimated 31.5 million Brits tuned into the service, which was also broadcast to 200 countries in 44 languages. In all, an estimated 2.5 billion people tuned in. That's nearly half of the world's population at that point, an astounding number. The wedding of the century had been eclipsed by the funeral of the century, proof of Diana's increased popularity. What had started out as mere voyeurism and candied fascination had, in 16 years, become genuine affection. Everyone felt like they knew Diana. She was a cross between a saint, an idol, and a dearly beloved friend. Take, for example, the Italian tourist Fabio Piras. He attempted to steal a teddy bear from the Ocean of Gifts outside St. James Palace in London, but angry mourners chased him down. Piras was jailed for a week. When he was released, a Scotsman was waiting for him outside. He punched Piras in the face while shouting, My Diana! She was the queen of everybody's hearts. This same sentiment was felt around the world. Everyone was upset by Diana's death, while those closest to her, the British monarchy, remained comparatively silent. Many onlookers played the blame game, arguing that the royals had grossly acquired, mistreated, and disposed of Diana. They looked back on her wedding with an entirely different view, as the event that sealed her fate. Had Prince Charles never taken her as his bride, she would still be here today. And then there was the issue of personal guilt. Had their obsession with Diana ultimately cost her her life? Would the accident have even happened had it not been for the paparazzi feeding an insatiable public? But whatever personal responsibility Diana's fans felt, it certainly didn't lead to reform. Celebrity obsession, which reached unseen heights when it came to Diana, continued into the 2000s with a vengeance. Even without the princess, the frenzy had to be fed, however dark the consequences. For the royal family, the end of the 90s was a nausea-inducing blur. In 1998, Dodi Fayed's father, Mohammed Al-Fayed, accused the British Secret Service of orchestrating Diana's murder, a conspiracy that was never proven, but that endures even today. Tabloids had a heyday with this thread. They continued to rehash the details of Diana's life and death, combing every corner for more insight. Andrew Morton reissued his biography under a revealing new title, Diana, Her True Story in Her Own Words, and an avalanche of other books, transcripts, and interviews were released, solidifying Diana's legacy to the discredit of the monarchy that spat her out. Princess Diana's popularity remains strong today, an endless source of fascination, not least of all for Americans. 
we absorbed her story with as much fascination as we would our own monarch, if we had one. Her secrets excited us. Her death horrified us. Even today, most of us can recall where they were when they heard about Diana's death. It stuck with us, a heaviness that defined a decade. As Ariane J. Chernock, a historian of monarchy from Boston University, points out, the tragedy of that fairy tale and Diana's in some ways very American commitment to being candid and questioning traditions and undercutting traditions probably appeals to American audiences. But perhaps the darkest thing to come out of the 90s royal family is just now coming to light, and it has a very American connection. On June 1st, 2020, Buckingham Palace confirmed that 60-year-old Prince Andrew will not return to public life, quote, for the foreseeable future. The announcement came after allegations that Andrew had sex with at least one minor in connection to Jeffrey Epstein's alleged sex ring. The case and the extent of Andrew's involvement with the late Epstein is yet to be determined, but multiple sources confirm that their friendship began, you guessed it, in the early 90s. In short, who knows what was going on while the rest of us were busy reading about Diana. That's another episode for another time. In the meantime, we'll leave you with a quote from Queen Elizabeth II's former press secretary, Charles Anson. The function of monarchy is to perform public duties, not to have their private lives played out in public. Unfortunately for them, they don't have a choice. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll be taking a look at 90s food. Throughout the decade, the U.S. played host to a slew of genetically modified crops, suspicious fad diets, and fast food marketing campaigns that targeted children. There was money to be made, whatever the costs to American health. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Allie Wicker, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.